as we've been working through John's gospel, I don't know if it struck you that three times in the last three chapters we have read, and Jesus was greatly troubled. So if you get your Bible there, you could flick back to John chapter 11, verse 33. John 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. John chapter 12, verse um, 27. John 12, verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then John chapter 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. As we enter into John chapter 14, we need to appreciate that the holy soul of Jesus was weighed down with pain and agony. For he knew what lay ahead of him. He knew that one of his own was about to betray him. He knew that he was about to suffer in his body the penalty and the punishment for sinners. The wrath of Almighty God. And yet even as Jesus' soul was weighed down with sorrow and pain, we discover immediately that his Mind and heart were not fixed on his own troubles, but on his disciples' trouble. In other words, once again, we are seeing the extent of Christ's love for his people. He came to put his people's needs before his own. He came, and even in his hour of greatest trial, even with the weight of the world on his shoulders as it were, What does Jesus do? He looks his 11 disciples square in the eyes and he speaks these soothing words, this powerful and compelling argument. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms or dwelling places. Jesus, as we're going to see, has a cure, has a remedy for troubled hearts. And the first thing he lays emphasis on is a lively faith. And we, we've, we've just thought there that Jesus, as he was in the upper room that night, he himself had a troubled heart. But now we discover, so too did the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that begs the question, why were the disciples' hearts so troubled? Well, I can't imagine it was easy to be with the one that they loved, the one that they followed, the one that they served. And they were now seeing something that wasn't characteristic of his life for the last three years. They're seeing him time and time again with the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And no wonder they were cast down with anxiety care. But add to that, these disciples would have been filled with trouble and confusion and consternation because Jesus has just said he's going away and they cannot go with him. 
He's about to depart. He's about to die. And they don't understand it. And then add into the mix, none of the disciples, apart from Judas Iscariot, knew who was going to betray him. And they've all been sitting there and they're wondering, why is Judas just left? Is he going to go buy some food for this meal? Is he going to go give money to the poor? What's going on? And then they've just all sat and listened as Jesus has spoken to Peter and said to Peter, Peter, you will deny me. It is no wonder that these disciples' hearts were troubled. And what we see is that Jesus sees them in this distressed and this distraught state and he he issues this simple command. Let not your hearts be troubled. And there's a sense in which we could say, really Jesus? Like, are you not breaking the most basic rule of counseling here? Telling a person not to be troubled when they're troubled is something that's just going to cause despair. All of us who are novices at counseling or comforting our friends, we've all been there before when a friend has said to us, I'm really worried, and we've said, don't be worried. Or they've said, I'm really sad, and we've said, don't be sad. Here's the disciples, they're fretting, and Jesus sees them in their sorry state, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Is this really Jesus' remedy for troubled hearts? Well, here's the thing. Jesus was no novice counselor. In fact, we know from the scriptures, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And so when Jesus says here, let not your hearts be troubled, you need to understand that he is addressing the matter, the heart of the matter, which is the matter of their hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. The wonderful counselor understands exactly what is going on. Yes, these disciples, they're experiencing this inner turmoil, but so too is he. That their griefs can't be compared. But Jesus, our great high priest, the sympathetic saved, he understands. He knows fully what is going on in their hearts. And so when he says these words, it's with so much sincerity and sensitivity and love. Let not your hearts be troubled. The one who himself was troubled of soul speaks to the ones who are troubled of heart and he tells them, do not be troubled. You know, there are different times when we will find ourselves in this life feeling just like the disciples. Overwhelmed with life. Anxious. Weighed down with cares and concerns. And there's moments where we can be tempted to believe There's no one who understands. There's no one who cares. But that's not true. There's a wonderful counselor. There's a sympathetic savior. Not only does he know you better than you know yourself, he cares for you. He loves you. And Jesus has just made known the extent of his love to his disciples a few moments ago when he washed their feet. And now Jesus is going to continue to make known his love as he speaks these soothing words. But not only is Jesus a wonderful counselor with a sympathetic heart, he's a wonderful counselor 
because his command has this glorious substance to it. Let not your hearts be troubled. And he adds, believe in God and believe also in me. After commanding them to remove the fear from their heart, Jesus commands them to receive in its place confidence that comes from a more appropriate and worthy foundation, belief in God. This may be a simple command that Jesus issues here, but it is not a hollow command. It is a glorious command. Believe in God. That is, turn your attention away from yourself and your circumstances and put your attention, put the eyes of your heart's focus on the one on whom it should be on, your God. Here Jesus calls his disciples to exercise lively faith. You know, this wouldn't have been shocking nor surprising to these disciples. And it shouldn't be shocking or surprising to us that Jesus calls us to trust God. We just sang about it in Psalm 34. Blessed is the one who trusts in God. We just sang about it in Psalm 42. The constant call of the scriptures for those who believe is to keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Keep our attention on our God. But what I do suspect may have shocked and surprised his disciples is that Jesus added the words, believe also with, believe also in me. Without hesitation, without qualification, Jesus invited them to trust in him the same way they trusted in God. Now there's a sense in which that doesn't surprise us. This is just proving what Jesus has already said about himself. He and the Father are one. He is God. Martin Luther says, Here you see plainly that Christ himself testifies that he is equal with God Almighty because we must believe in him even as we believe in God. Why should we trust in Jesus? Well, Jesus is going to show us next week that you can't say you trust in God if you don't trust in him because he's the only way to the Father. You want to know if you truly trust in God? You trust in Jesus. You trust in the one who stooped down in humble love to serve you. You trust in the one who spoke words like this, let not your hearts be troubled, because he is the one who is worthy of our trust. Do you know why Jesus is so worthy of the disciples' trust in this moment? Is that he was troubled for their greatest trouble. He'd come in this world to suffer in his body as the Lamb of God, the penalty and the punishment that their sin deserved. He'd come, so to speak, to deal with their greatest trouble. That they were sinners condemned before a holy God. And if we get the logic of faith, if we trust in God and we trust also in him, that means that those who trust in Jesus were saved from our greatest trouble of ever facing the wrath of God. We are safe and secure in him. Now let me be clear that when Jesus says this, this is a compelling argument, and it's, it's part of a much bigger argument. And I appreciate that when we hear this command, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, that it can sometimes bounce off our minds. 
and it doesn't sink deep into our hearts. One of the things that Jesus knows about all of us is that we are not immune from trials and tribulations. We're not immune from troubled hearts. But here's the logic of faith. We can entrust ourselves to him by lively faith, knowing that if he's taking care of our greatest trouble, he will be with us and he will take care of us in all of our trials and troubles in this life. And this has to be my question. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Believing in him won't change your circumstances, but it will transform your perspective. Do you believe him? This is medicine. This is, this is the cure for troubled hearts, a lively faith. But then secondly, we come to verses 2 and 3, and Jesus is another remedy for troubled hearts, and it's living hope. Jesus now speaks of our hope, and do you know what the hope of the Christian is? It's our heavenly home with him and the Father. In my Father's house are many rooms, or literally dwelling places. And just, just for a moment, think about it. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he wants them to understand that heaven is our home. Heaven is our home. Fewer things evoke deeper feelings or of richer associations than the thought of home. Generally speaking, home for, all, for, for many of us is a place we love to go to. Generally speaking, it's a place where we are loved for our own sakes, not for our gifts, not for our possessions. It's a place where we go and we always receive a welcome. Home. And here Jesus, he wants to comfort these disciples who who know that they're going to fail him, who know they're going to stumble, and he wants to comfort them with the hope that they have a home. Now, what makes this so comforting is when you know the the big picture of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that we were made to dwell in the near presence of God. Our home is in the presence of God. But because of sin and because of the fall, we were evicted from our home in our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we were made homeless. Every single one of of us in this room, created in God's image, whether we're aware of it or not, have this deep longing for home. We long to be in the presence of the one who loves us and the one who cares for us and the one in whom we can enjoy all things. But one of our biggest problems is because of our sin, we feel like we don't belong in the presence of God. We know that we don't belong in the presence of God. For how can a holy God live with sinful people? And here Jesus comes and he speaks to his disciples and he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And his point is, in my Father's house is a place for you. You belong in the presence of God. Now, Jesus will come and say, the reason we belong in the presence of God is because we believed in him and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. 
It's really interesting, right? This is one of the most misunderstood verses and misused verses in the Bible. Funerals, many places. And one of the reasons it can be so often misused is because of older translations. Now, the great William Tyndale has got a lot to answer for. When he translated the Bible into English, he translated this verse to say, In my father's house there are many mansions. And the old King James Version carried that on. And so when people read this verse, they hear it as that Jesus is going to build us a heavenly Buckingham Palace. That's our reward when we get to glory. And that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the, the lavishness of, or the prosperity of what we're going to have in heaven. No, Jesus' big point in order to comfort his disciples here is to say, guys, you don't need to worry about belonging because you believe in me. You've got a place, a permanent residence in my father's house. It's really interesting. The word room he uses here, literally dwelling, abode, it's used one other time, and it's used in this chapter. And it's in John chapter 14, verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home or dwelling with him. So the commentators say, this text speaks of the Father and the Son making their home with believers, i.e. making themselves present with them. When we unpack the metaphor of verse 2, we should think of the privilege of abiding in God's presence. If you don't let these words just bound off, bounce off your mind and you let them sink deep down into your soul, Jesus is speaking the most comforting words imaginable. Those of us who believe in him will one day dwell with him in a place where there is no sickness, where there is no suffering, where there is no death, where there is no trouble. And we were made to dwell there. And we will dwell there forevermore in fact jesus jesus really does not want this to just bounce off our minds he wants us to sink deep into our hearts and souls and that's why he goes on and says if it were not so i would have told you listen church this is not pie in the sky stuff when you die this is your concrete this is your living hope Because Jesus lived, died, and was raised. Because of his resurrection from the dead, you and I have a place in the presence of Almighty God. This should thrill us. This should excite us. This should fill us with joy inexpressible. I can't say this with absolute conviction, but when I read the call to worship, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, It would not surprise me that when Peter penned those words, he had John chapter 14, verses 1 and 3 in mind. They're all about heaven. They're all about faith. They're all about belief in the midst of trials. Where did he learn? From the lips of his Savior on the eve of his death. Now, now one of the massive obsessions in the 21st century church, and I've been as guilty as anyone of this obsession, is when we talk about heaven and we talk about the new creation, we're really keen that people understand that when we go to the new creation, in many ways, it's going to be in some ways like this world, but different. 
far better, far superior, but it's going to be an embodied reality where we, we will be there with body and soul. And, and so many people then start asking questions, so what, what are we going to work at in heaven? What are we going to eat in heaven? It's the wrong focus. Now, Scripture does lead us in, in directions like that, but it's the wrong point because Jesus goes on to say, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and leave you to myself that where I am, there you also may be. Jesus wants us to know that heaven is heaven because not, not what it's like as a place, because in heaven we are with him. Heaven is about a person. Heaven is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven will have at its heart and center the Lamb who was slain. Our hope for heaven is that we will be in the presence of the one who loved us, who served us, who saved us. And at the end, he wants to heal us, wipe every tear-stained eye, and he wants us to dwell with him forevermore. Honestly, as Christians, myself included, I need to make my magnificent obsession Jesus. He is my and yours, if you believe in him, our future hope. He is our heavenly home. You know, because of the bad translation of verse 2, when Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, the image that comes to mind, this is the image I had. Jesus was a carpenter, so when he goes to heaven to prepare a place for us, he's, he's up there building like a heavenly Buckingham Palace for us. Right? It's wrong. I'm sorry. That's totally wrong. Jesus is not in heaven right now building you a mansion. When he says, if I go, or I am going, see that word go, going, It's the loaded term here. And what he means by that is his death. His sacrifice. How did Jesus prepare a place for you and me in his father's house? By shedding his blood as the Passover lamb so that you and I would not receive the judgment of Almighty God. Jesus is our great high priest. He's not just a wonderful counselor. He's our glorious lamb who laid down his life. But There's another job of the great high priest in the temple. And it's the other way that Jesus prepares a place for us. The other job of the great high priest is to go into the holy of holies and to pray. To intercede on the people's behalf. In fact, in the Old Testament, the imagery of the the high priest is he walks into the holy of holies and on his chest is this ephod and it's got all the names of the people of God. And the image we have to have right now in our heads that should bring us so much comfort is that right now at the Father's right hand is our great high priest and he ever lives to intercede for you and I because he's prepared a place for us in heaven and he promises he will take us there. He will get us through this life in this fallen, broken world with all of its troubles and trials and he is praying for us in the court of heaven. And the glorious thought is, when we get to heaven, all the angels will know of us. All the people will know of us. Because the Savior, the High Priest, has been praying for us. We've been known and thought of before we get there, because heaven is our home.
In fact, the, the glorious thing is Jesus says he will come and he will take us there. He will lead us into our new home. He will lead us into the very presence of God. You know, the, the thing that troubled the disciples' hearts is when they heard Jesus say, I'm going, I'm leaving you, and you cannot come where I'm going, they thought that Jesus' departure was, was going to be a disadvantage. Little did they realize that his going was to their absolute advantage. So what's the remedy for troubled hearts? A living hope. So I need to ask you this question. When you go through trials and troubles and hardships, are you aware of your hope? Are you aware that you have a home in the presence of Almighty God? You see, when we're Christians, right, we don't just believe in the theoretical. The, th- the fact of the matter is Jesus lived, died, and was raised. His resurrection is the guarantee that you and I will one day be raised and taken into his presence forevermore. Our future hope of glory isn't just something far off that we think about. It's something that's got to impact us in the very here and now. So can I ask you a question, and, and maybe the, the first question I need to ask you, can you think of something right now in your life that is troubling you? Maybe something in your home, maybe something in your work, maybe something in your studies, maybe something in the future. Take that thing that whatever in your mind is troubling you, right? And let's apply our hope to it. Let's apply our future hope to your struggle, your troubled hearts. Now, here's the honest truth. Your future hope right now will not change your present circumstances. But your future hope can transform the way you think about your present circumstances. Your present circumstances, and I recognize some of you are suffering great things. Some of you are going through really difficult times. Your future hope guarantees you that there will come the day where you will receive healing, where you will receive a place where there is no sickness, where there is no sin, where there is no suffering, where there is no death. Your future hope can transform the way you think about your present troubles. The other night there, um, someone in the congregation gave me a book that they got at the Ligonier Conference. kind of wish I didn't get it. Sinclair Ferguson has written a book called the Up- Lessons from the Upper Room. <laughs> so I picked it up and I read it in the tube. And I was like, this is my sermon. <laughs> I've not preached Sinclair Ferguson's sermon. But when I read it, he gave one illustration that really stood out to me. It was just an illustration from Scripture. He said, do you remember that time when Jesus is on the, the boat with his disciples and there's that great storm? And the disciples are terrified. So do you know what Jesus says to them as a wonderful counselor? Why are you so afraid? You, you see what's happened is their hearts were filled with fear. And then Jesus goes on and he asks another question. And here Jesus gets to the heart of the problem. He says, said to them, do you still have no faith? you know faith instead of being filled with faith they were filled with fear and so here they are and they're in their present circumstances and they're terrified 
They're overwhelmed. And little do they know that there in the boat with them is one who commands the wind and the waves. And that illustration is so analogous to our Christian lives in this regard. You and I go through great trials and sufferings, and our problem is, is we get fixated on them, but we never fixate our hearts and our minds on Jesus. And we don't fix our hearts and minds on the Passover lamb who shed his blood to deal with our greatest trouble. And that truly is gospel, and it is the balm of Gilead. It is the medicine for the troubled heart and soul. And our future hope of a heavenly home in the presence of God, well, there's nothing that compares to it. We will be with Jesus, and we will sing the worthy praises of the Lamb forevermore. And there's nothing that will fill your heart and soul with more joy and more love and more delight. So what's the remedy for a troubled heart? A lively faith and a living hope. Let's pray. Father, every time we come to meditate upon the Upper Room Discourse, we come to understand that there are new depths to which we are loved by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To think that on the night of nights, when he was facing his hour of death, uppermost in his mind were his people, and bringing comfort to them. And even today we've been reminded that even now at your right hand sits our Savior and our great high priest and he lives to pray for us. We thank you for the comfort of just knowing him and believing him and trusting him. We thank you that he is so worthy of our trust. We say, Lord, have mercy upon us because so so many times in our Christian lives we don't trust. We have hearts that are filled with fear. Hearts that are little faith. And so we pray that this morning you would renew our faith, you would renew our trust, and that you would fill our hearts and minds with our hope of a heavenly home in your presence. God, cause us to long as a deer pants for the water. Cause our souls to long to meet with you, the living God, our living hope. Even this morning, may this be a taste of what life is like in your presence, singing your praises, rejoicing, and boasting in your glory. Lord, we want to pray for everyone in our congregation who's been through hard times right now. And we want to pray that your son, the wonderful counselor, would minister to their hearts and souls today and tomorrow and in the days that lie ahead. And we want to praise those who have heard Jesus ministered to his disciples that we would minister to those who we live with and share life with in this church. Help us to mourn with those who mourn. And help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And give us minds and hearts that so love, that so encourage, because we have hearts and minds that are fixed on Jesus. And we pray all of this in his precious and powerful name. Amen.